we bow our heads and pray together. The heart of the Eternal is most wonderfully kind. Lord God, we come before you and we ask that in the hearing of your word this morning, we might appreciate for ourselves in ever deeper ways your heart and your kindness and live it out in our lives. Amen. Do you please sit. Well, what is it uh, that we are about? Uh, Nigel's told us all that the, the theme is the cross. Why? Why now? Well, it's because heading into our 150th year of uh, our founding, and our founding as an evangelical church to bear witness uh, to Christ in this place, I wanted to set down a marker of three of the distinctives that mark an evangelical church in this country. Two weeks ago, Mark preached on our commitment to Scripture, to a communicating God whose word is trustworthy and to be honoured. And this week, I'm asking that we consider the second of those markers, the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, it may seem a bit too simple in one sense. After all, all kinds of traditions within the Church of God honor the cross and even adorn uh, their church buildings with crosses. But here in 1 Peter is a particular claim about what's happening on the cross, and today, as much as ever, it's a subject of disagreement. Do please turn to it. We're on page 1219. And what I want to do is to set out a picture of what it means to believe these words uh, as they appear, to take God at his word. The world, and sometimes the church, does not generally believe them. And yet the only way for any human being to live in the light of eternity is to believe them. And it would be my prayer that this church will hold on to these words and their meaning for 150 years to come and well beyond. And we're going to focus most of our thinking around verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18, again, page 1219. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ, first of all, is the righteous. Every now and then, a little detective work uh, with biblical quotations pays massive dividends. And I got very excited by this. In, um, in verse 14, Peter's writing and says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And then he opens a quotation from the eighth chapter of Isaiah. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. The quote ends. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. And I was puzzled. I thought, why say that? It's not that it's difficult to understand. Setting apart Christ as Lord is probably a good thing to do. But why use that odd phrase? And so I went back to Isaiah. And what Isaiah says and he's criticizing an unbelieving people around him at the time, is this. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, 
set apart the Lord as the one to fear. See what's going on. Peter is quite deliberately taking a complaint against the people in Isaiah's day that they don't regard God himself as the Holy Lord, and then he's applying it, but to Jesus, that we, a fear that we might not regard Christ as the Holy Lord. It's the clearest possible way he could do of claiming that all God's people, all that God's people could say of the Almighty Lord, God in his holiness, can be applied to Jesus. He's taken one saying about God Almighty and simply applied it to Jesus Christ. There's a Christian publisher, I won't name them, who's been looking at how to market this book. They conducted surveys, and they discovered that more people would buy something called the Bible than called the Holy Bible. And so they've taken the word holy off their front cover. And yet Peter is quite clear. Holy is a good thing to be. And Christ the Lord has all the blazing, fearful, awesome holiness that belongs to the Almighty God himself. So Christ is righteous. He's the very essence of what it is to be good. But we are not. Verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous. At the heart of this letter, the first letter of Peter, and in ways I'd never appreciated until I had this kind of canter through it, there is the issue of speech, good speech and bad speech. If your page is open at page 12, 18, and 19, then just, just look at what's in front of us. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Deceit, hypocrisy, and slander appear, all sins of speech. Chapter 2 and verse 9, we are a people in order to declare the praises of him. Chapter 2 and verse 15, our task is to silence the talk of foolish people. Verse 22, no deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, he was insulted, but he made no threats. Verse 4 of chapter 3, the value of a quiet spirit. And the whole section then that we've heard today begins with a focus on a harmony where there is no insulting, but only the speaking of blessing. Sin in this letter, unrighteousness, appears focused on a kind of speech that expresses a darkened heart and leads to strife. And so, Peter draws on Psalm 34, the longer quote that you've got there from verse 10. We are to avoid what comes naturally to us, tongues that speak evil and deceitfully. And in response, within that quote, the righteous offer good speech, prayer. And Peter goes on to say, we offer an answer, verse 15, to those who oppose us speaking gently, even though we may have to deal with malice and slander. Now, we've all known, haven't we, that, that frustration, that maddening sense that you just said something, and boy, you wish you could pull those words back. And if, if we're looking at sin through the lens of speech, 
we can capture that frustration about sin, that sense of it happens, but oh, we wish it hadn't. And in that kind of sin, one thing is clear, the sinner is responsible. Look at that quotation from Psalm 34. He must keep his tongue from evil. He must turn from evil. He must seek peace. My failure to speak and to act in love and peace is my responsibility. I've got something I must do. And of course, all too often I'm aware that I don't do it. And we may think that's not very surprising. And yet, (coughs) if we can read this passage and see Christ the Lord as righteous and ourselves as unrighteous and at fault for it, then we've already got to the heart of what's distinctive about an evangelical witness. And it may not sound very surprising, but I want to suggest three verbs around what we do with it. First, and within the church, we contend for a biblical view of what happened on the cross. In Christ Jesus, God was dealing with sins that are our, that are our fault. I read a book the other day uh, to do with word pictures of salvation and expressing our need of it. We are lost, we are trapped, we are sick, we are in turmoil, we are barren. And indeed, all of those things are true. But by themselves, they express only our helplessness. It's something that's happened to us. And if that's all there is to say, then God's task is to rescue the helpless, who should presumably be very thankful. And much of the church will use that language. But it is a distinctive among those who take God's word seriously that we want to hold to Peter's claim that we are unrighteous. What's gone wrong is my fault. We are guilty. We are in the wrong, and we have put ourselves there. And so within the church of God, we have to contend these days for the Bible's insistence that we are responsible for our sin. And because we are responsible, there must be a penalty that stands against us. It's not merely helplessness, but a willful refusal in my heart and yours to set apart Christ as Lord. And so, as Psalm 34 puts it, the face of the Lord is against those. He must condemn us. And I suspect that only Bible-believing churches are now left as those who insist that the good news of Jesus is good because without it, God's face is actually against us. We must contend within the church for that truth or we will fall victim to the notion that God is a nice chap who just makes it better for those to whom nasty things have happened. And if I stand condemned before God, facing a penalty against me, then it makes sense that someone else could enter upon the scene and pay that penalty for me as my representative. So the righteous dies for the unrighteous. 
Now, if we have to contend within the church these days for a view of sin in which we are responsible, we're not just victims, then we also have to defend within the world a whole package around sin and judgment. And indeed, in fairness to those who've ended up with a a nice God, helping those who are helpless and only doing that, Part of the reason for giving in on judgment is the tremendous pressure from a world that just thinks this must be absolute nonsense. There is, I think, simply a blank incredulity, as Nigel said to the kids when uh, they were in. It's hard. Too much of this biblical picture has to begin from scratch, it seems, for it to make sense to many. And I've been wondering, where is the key? How can we find again the key that will turn the lock to help people reconnect with what the Bible actually says? And so I've got a suggestion. You can see whether it might work for for you, perhaps, and for those you care about who are without faith. I suggest that at least part of it is this that we've simply allowed God to become impersonal. And so sin becomes impersonal. If my picture of sin is breaking the law as we think of law, sin as rules, then a penalty of death seems ridiculous. Someone paying that penalty for me seems absurd. And isn't that exactly what's happened? We've worked very hard to get away from the picture of God as an old man with a white beard in the sky. But at least that picture had a face and was personal. And I suspect now, for those, God God has become simply a, a, a force and perhaps a badly put together jigsaw, a bit of comfort blanket over here for when you are in need. Uh, and a, a bit of a traffic warden over here for when you want some, something to be said about morality. But the God of whom Peter is writing here is gloriously personal, much more personal than you are or I am, or will ever be. It's not for nothing that the psalmist speaks of his eyes, his ears, and his face. Of course, it's only a picture, but it's a picture of a person who has a heart and who delights in his creation. Haven't you ever gone somewhere beautiful? Perhaps some sort of national trust property and taken a picnic. Or or you've gone to uh, the broads and to a riverside and been furious at some litter that's a blot on the landscape. Well, God's reaction to sin is a personal, raging fury against our defacing of his beautiful creation. He literally cannot abide it. He cannot abide in the same place as it. It must go, or he must, and he can't, so it must. And that's our sin. Insofar as we are little centers of responsibility, willfully defying his rule and intentions, then of course we have to be wiped away. Rule-breaking 
doesn't capture what sin is in its fullness, though it is rule-breaking. We have become a blot on God's landscape. And I suspect if, the, if, if we can, in our own prayer lives perhaps, in our reading of Scripture, it, and then as it flows out of us, if we can but get back to God as personal and put sin in personal, not legal terms, put holiness in beautiful, not moral terms, then there is a chance that God's wrath against sin will make sense. And if that's the case, then a sentence of death for sin can make sense again too. Our world has largely got rid of a personal God, and I fear that if it did so, it's probably because we did first. And the whole idea of a God who could require my death as a sinner is simply preposterous for many people. And we must defend it, contend within the church, defend in the face of the world. We must defend it, not give in to an impersonal God. If God is impersonal, then of course the cross is nonsense, but the cross is not nonsense, and it tells us that God is personal. But why bother when all is said and done? Yes, the Bible may say these things, but why does it matter? Can't we just allow the world to claim the bits of Scripture it finds helpful and let the rest go? Well, I don't think we can, and because of the final verb. We contend within the church. We defend in the face of the world. And we do so in order to befriend Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, Peter says in verse 18. But why does he say it? What's he doing with that statement, true as it may be? It's part of an argument that's begun in chapter 2. And he's illustrating in verse 18, he's illustrating his point, uh, his argument, with this truth about Christ, that Christ died for sinners, because only then, only if Christ dies, the righteous for the unrighteous, only then does it become possible to live out, verse 8, to live in harmony, to love as brothers, to be compassionate and humble. Only then can we live to the extraordinary extent required to amaze the world around us. If you're prepared to absorb the rubbish that the world and the church will throw at you, then you're living in verse 8 because of verse 18. And you can only do that if you live for a Lord who has absorbed the sin that you personally and with full responsibility threw at him. If the cross, let me put it like this, if the cross is not solving the problem of God's wrath with me, then I will not have enough power, frankly, to put up with you, or you with me, at any other level than a mildly nice club. Only a God who has condemned my guilt and then taken it fully on himself as God in Christ, only such a God gives us the power to see change happen in the world. We're not in the business of contending in the church, defending in the world, out of a sense just of fierce idealism. 
but because only a cross that's about a penalty faced by Jesus out of love, a penalty that is mine because of my guilt, only that kind of cross drives forward a joy and a love in me and in you that will change the world. Let me summarize it all with a hymn. At the end of our service, we will sing an old hymn. Man of sorrows, what a name. And I invite you to pay attention to the third verse of it. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Alleluia. What a saviour. It is so precisely right. If you remember nothing about contend, defend, and befriend, it doesn't matter. But remember that hymn. It tells you everything you need to know, probably for the rest of your life. We are guilty. It tells us of a responsibility we cannot shirk. There's no passing it off as someone else's fault. There's no saying, I was just a victim. It is my responsibility I am guilty. And yet I am also quite helpless. There's no exercise of my responsibility can get me out of the mess, out of the verdict that God must pass upon me. Well, it's an old hymn, and so I suppose many have assumed the ideas must be old and out of date. And that's what some modern updater of the the hymn thought when... uh, Uh, He changed it, she, I don't know, to guilty, lost, and helpless. Well, it's not wrong. But why change that little word, vile? If I say I am vile, am I just wringing my hands and being falsely modest? Uh, (coughs) Some will argue, don't use that kind of word. It puts people down who need to be affirmed and lifted up who need to be told of their value. Well, of course, millions of people, billions around the world, need to be told of their value. It's true. But give them value, build them up, provide love and fulfillment, and do they turn to Christ as Lord? Not necessarily. If I say I am vile, I am not dealing in the currency of self-esteem. I'm not saying I'm better than you or worse than you. I am simply saying that next to the dazzling splendor of the living, holy, almighty God, then as Amazing Grace says, I'm just a wretch. I'm not merely lost. I take responsibility, and I say, yes, it is my sin, and sin is vile, and so am I. God, give us grace in this church for another 150 years, or however long these stones are here, to contend within the church for an an insistence on human guilt that incurs God's wrath, to defend against the world a God who is so gloriously personal that sin and sinners must be wiped out before him, and to do so that there might be the power to befriend the friendless, so that new generations of unbelievers will arise who can stand and sing beside us. Full atonement, can it be? Alleluia. What a saviour.
I'm going to finish by asking us all to stand. I wondered whether to ask some to stand, but I thought you'd probably all be embarrassed, so I'm going to ask you all to stand. Because it struck me in preparing this, that the cross, though we touch upon it most weeks, we rarely, uh, in a sense, if I can put it like this, grab it and uh, spend time thinking of nothing but it and its work in dealing with our sin. There are probably some of you who have been glad to be here week after week, but have never faced the responsibility of your own sin and guilt, and therefore never really come to rejoice that Jesus died for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You've never known the freedom that that hymn sings of. I'd like to pray. And if you want to enter into that in full heart and mind, and perhaps for the first time, you've had lots of religion. I understand that. You like church. I suppose I understand that. But you've never actually come before the cross of Christ and looked at it and said, what's going on there is something I want to enter into. So if, if it's true for you for the first time, as I pray, then do find a way to tell someone. Uh, come for prayer. Um, uh, uh, Peter and Colin are going to be uh, up here uh, over in the chapel afterwards to uh, prayer. Or speak to me or to Mark or any one of, other, of our leaders. But put down a marker that will ever after help you to say, this was the day I faced the fact. Christ died for my sin to bring me to God. So let's pray. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Lord Jesus Christ, you are righteous, I am unrighteous. The sin is mine, and I am guilty, and yet you have died for me, to bring me to God. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you, and I ask that I might live out in joy and love and hope before you, a life that rejoices that though I may be guilty, vile, and helpless, it really is that full atonement can be, and you have made that atonement and brought me to God. Amen.